How's that? Okay, sorted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've been speaking so clearly to us already this morning regarding living for our own lives instead of living for you. New clothes of these bags we need to discard. You've been speaking so clearly. We pray, God, that you would continue to speak as we search your word, as we hear what you have to say on the subject of repentance in Jesus' name. Continuing in the series of holy, I'm speaking this morning on the subject of the holiness of repentance. Now, now repentance is not one of those uh, subjects that people get excited about generally. People, people imagine, I think, often if you speak of repentance, the guy standing with the end is near, end is near sign and a long beard and, and, and saying, repent. And, and that's perhaps some of the associations. But I can tell you, if you read history, and church history in particular, there's not a single revival that wasn't characterized by repentance and deep repentance. How's that? Better? Yeah. Okay, cool. So I read a phrase this December holiday, and I just can't get rid of it. It's... it's it's stuck with me. Repentance isn't, te- isn't tears, it's change. Repentance isn't tears, it's change. Repentance isn't tears, it's change. If there's one idea I'd like you to walk away with today, is that repentance involves change. Repentance may include tears, and and frequently it should, but the evidence of repentance is not tears. The evidence of repentance is change. Change from what? Change to what? What does that look like? What does repentance even mean? So we're going to look at some of these things this morning, and, and I'd like you to have in mind as I do that some of the words that were brought this morning, because I think that they line up really well. I'm going to read from my favorite uh, author, Mark Buchanan. I'm going to read from his third book, The Holy Wild. It's a story that I think illustrates some of the points I'd like to make. He's quoting a writer, Anne Lamott. One of our newest members, a man named Ken Wilson, Ken Nelson, is dying of AIDS, disintegrating before our very eyes. He came in a year ago with a Jewish woman who comes every week to be with us, although she doesn't believe in Jesus. Shortly after the man with AIDS started coming, his partner died of the disease. Weeks later, Ken told us that right after Brandon died, Jesus had slid into the hole in his heart that Brandon's loss had left and has been there ever since. Ken has a totally lopsided face, ravaged and emaciated. But when he smiles, he is radiant. He says that he would gladly pay any price for what he has now, which is Jesus and us. Lamont goes on to tell about a woman in her church, Renola, 
who is large and black and devout as can be, but who's been a little standoffish towards Ken. Renola views Ken with suspicion, fear, a bit of disgust. I think she and a few other women at church are, at the most visceral level, a little afraid of catching the disease. But Kenny has come to our church almost every week for the last year and won almost everyone over. He finally missed a couple of Sundays when he got too weak. And then a month ago he was back, weighing almost no pounds. His face even more lopsided, as if he'd had a stroke. Still, during the prayers of the people, he talked joyously of his life and decline, of grace and redemption, of how happy and safe he feels this day. And then the congregation began to sing. Kenny was too weak to stand, so he sang sitting down, the hymnal open on his lap because he lacked the strength to hold it. And then, when it came time for the second hymn, the fellowship hymn, we were to sing His Eyes on the Sparrow, the pianist playing and, and the whole congregation had risen. Only Ken remained seated, holding the hymnal in his lap, and we began to sing. Why should I feel discouraged? Why do the shadows fall? And Renola watched Ken rather skeptically for a moment, and then her face began to melt and contort like his. And she went to his side and bent down to lift him up, lifted up this white rag doll, this scarecrow. She held him next to her, draped over her like a child, while they sang, and it pierced me. I can't imagine anything but music that could have brought about this alchemy. I can't imagine anything but worship, glimpsing God's holiness in a way that ruins and heals us that could do this. In this story, we see the transformation of a believer. We see in the unfolding drama, her, her heart changes and her face changes and the way that she acts changes. If, if we need a definition of repentance, and I'm going to look at a definition of repentance in a moment, if we need a definition of, of repentance with legs, it's this. Our hearts change. Our faces change. And the way we act changes. In the Old Testament, the word that is translated as, as repent is the word bus. It, um, it means if I'm walking north, I turn around and head south. It means to, to turn around, to retreat, as if you're going towards an enemy and you turn around and you head in the opposite direction. That's what it means. And in the Old Testament, repent is, is pretty clear. It's obvious. It's something you can see. If somebody repented of a sin, they were going towards it, desiring it, and they turn around and they run away from it. Repentance is easy in the Old Testament because you can see it. In the New Testament, not so simple. In the New Testament, the word translated as repent is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind. Now, we think of changing our mind as, well, standing at the takeaway, and I decide I'm going to order a cheeseburger, and I change my mind, and I decide to order a pizza. That's what it means to change your mind, right? You decide you like to support the sharks, and you change your mind, and you decide to support the blue bulls. 
I, I don't have faith for that, but, but I can imagine it happening. No, that's not what's meant at all. To change your mind here means to change the way you think. To start to think the way that God thinks. To think about something the way that God thinks is to repent. To experience metanoia. Repentance is change. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to the gathered crowd. And he says, you heard it said, referring to the Old Testament, you heard it said, um, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, if you don't commit murder, if you commit murder, you stand in, in liable for judgment. But I say to you, I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. See, to Jesus, what's happening on the outside is relevant, but it's not the most, it's not the primary consideration. It's what's happening on the inside. In the kingdom of God, let me put this slightly differently. If the kingdom of God was a vehicle, wouldn't be a Land Rover. If the kingdom of God was a vehicle, its fuel would be desire. Desire is the fuel for the kingdom of God to advance. What do I mean by that? Jesus, in the Bible, is described in this way. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Desire drove Jesus to the cross, and desire held him there. Paul, writing in Philippians, I'm quoting from the Amplified, says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him. Desire, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers, that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that, if possible, I may attain the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body." Desire, passion. We sometimes mistakenly think that it's duty that drives us. John Piper, a wonderful preacher, once gave the example. He said, imagine it was my wife's anniversary and I arrived home after a long day at work and I presented her with a bunch of flowers to say, happy anniversary. And she said, John, these are such wonderful flowers. Thank you so much. I love them. And he said, it is no more than my duty. How would that go down? Yeah? No? No? The primary picture in the New Testament of the church is the bride with Jesus as the bridegroom. 
I believe that God has, has shaped the story of the church, in fact, from Genesis to Revelation. In terms of desire, in terms of, of, of what do you want? What do you want? What do you prize? That's not to say that the mushy feelings are always there. It's simply not the case. But it is desire that drives us. If you love someone, you will try not to do things that hurt them, not because there's a rule against it, but because you love them, you don't want to hurt them. I'm going to suggest this morning, having thought about this for some time, that love is transformed desire. The thing is that your body will never go <coughs> where your mind has not gone first. Ever thought about that? I have a friend, Nick Abrams, big wave surfer, bodyboarder. And he used to surf these massive waves in Hawaii. He spent a few seasons there. And I said to him, how do you take off on the wave? How do you, how do you paddle onto something that can kill you? He said, it's easy, Raymond. You've got to desire, des decide that you're ready to die. If you've decided that you're ready to die, it's easy. If you're worried about whether you're going to die, you're going to, you're going to wipe out. Your body will never go where your mind hasn't gone already. You will never commit adultery if you haven't created room in your heart for lust to live. You will never murder someone if you haven't made a space for hatred and anger and resentment to feel comfortable and at home. You know, the, the, we, we speak in English, in the English language, we speak of uh, entertaining a thought. Always think about that. I, I think, I think a, a thought arrives at, at the door of your consciousness and you say, come in. Make yourself welcome. Can I offer you some tea? So if, if, if those thoughts are ungodly, we should be saying, footsack. <laughs> yeah? And we can look at how to do that in a moment. Before I get there, I'm going I'm to do a little excursus. Does anyone else think that the standard Jesus set in the Sermon on the, on the Mount is unfairly high? Hey? Eh? Don't you think, like, who, who, who has never had a lustful thought? I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. I'll tell you who has had lustful thoughts. Who's, who's had murderous thoughts? Who's had covetous thoughts? Who's had prideful thoughts? By that definition, I can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely no way but by grace. So, so Jesus becomes sin on our behalf so that we, through grace, may acquire the righteousness of God. It's our only way in. So when we speak of, of repentance, and I'm going to deal with it in some detail in a moment, but when we speak of repentance, it's in the context that we cannot earn our own righteousness ever, ever. The yardstick for God's holiness is God. We like to think of sin this way. I'm not so bad because that guy's worse. Yeah? That's not the right standard. I'm that bad because the standard's God. And we don't get to start. It's like arriving at the Grand Canyon 
and saying, well, I'm a better long jumper than this guy. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, you're going to die. What then does repentance practically mean? In Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul writes this. And, and, and just, just before we get there, Paul doesn't get further than the first chapter of a single one of his epistles without writing about the glories of grace. Paul gets grace, and he writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Other translations say, which is your reasonable act of worship. Reason, your head, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may by testing discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Keith Green, a Christian music artist, once said that the Christian life is the process of nailing a squirming lump of human flesh to a cross. And the problem with a living sacrifice is that we want to crawl off the altar. None of us like it. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice And don't be conformed to the, to the world, to the word world there is aeon, it's uh, the, this present age. Don't be conformed to societal pressures to be something that you're not. Don't conform to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which is quite important because renewing of your mind involves metanoia. I'm going to deal with the mind first because our bodies follow where our minds are at. There's, there's a fascinating field in medicine that's been developing the last couple of years called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is a recognition that the physical structure of your brain has an influence on how you think. And, and what you do with what you think changes the physical structure of your brain. So I'm going to think, I'm going to, I'm going to present an idea to you. Imagine, let me think of a sin, porn, pornography. Imagine uh, pornography has you in its grip and you're, when, when you feel the desire, you, you look at pornography and there's an immediate gratification and then deep-seated shame and all of the negative consequences from the sin of pornography. And every time you have that desire, you go to the pornography, temporary gratification, long-lasting shame. And every time you do that, it's like there are furrows in your mind, channels. It's, um, the electrochemical impulses fire along synapses. So it's, it's like digging, digging a channel. And every time you do it, you have a particular stimulus and a particular response. Every time you do it, the, the channel gets deeper and your thoughts, like water, run into the channel because water always seeks its lowest point, so do your thoughts. And what happens is, the more you do it, the more that becomes entrenched. It's an entrenched way of thinking. And it's very difficult to change that. That's difficult, because your thoughts will run to where it's easy to run. Repentance, changing your mind, means this. You dig a new channel. That stimulus, different response. 
And the first couple of times you do it, the water runs everywhere. It wants to go back to the easy channel. But the more you do it, the more that becomes the channel. So I, I used to work uh, a few meters away from a very nice coffee machine. And I drank eight, ten cups of coffee a day. Yo, very bad for you. I was much younger and more foolish than I am even now. And, and with the, each cup of sugar, I would, a cup of sugar, that's right. With each cup of coffee, I would have two sugars. That's a lot of sugar. That's a lot of sugar. That's bad for you. So I decided, you know what, I'm having far too much sugar, I'm having far too much coffee. This is my cunning plan. I'm going to have no sugar in my coffee. So I went down to one cup a day. Because it just tasted disgusting. Okay? But you know, after years of drinking coffee with no sugar, if I have coffee with sugar, it doesn't taste right. It tastes awful. If I have coffee with two sugars in, I can't drink it at all. See, my, ch my tastes have changed. That's what, that's what repentance is. Your, your tastes change. But let me tell you, if I drank coffee with one sugar in it, after a while I could drink coffee with two sugars. Because you can go back. Where do you want your mind to go? How are we going to train our minds to conform with our reality? Our re reality is this. I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the Most High, and I have the mind of Christ. That's our default position. Why would we return to sin? That's not our default position anymore. There's a whole preach in this. I'm not going to go there today. I'm going to leave someone else to do that one. But, but the truth is, sin has no longer got dominion over us. We can surrender ourselves to sin because it gives us a lack of, lack of pleasure feeling, and it does, temporary. Or we can surrender ourselves to God. You know, sometimes we think of God as a divine killjoy. Yeah? He doesn't want us to have fun. Ever had that thought? It's not true. The Bible says that, that in his right hand are pleasures forever. Joy is the very currency of heaven. If, if you read accounts of what heaven looks like, it's, it's pleasure. In fact, if you, if you look at, at accounts in the, in the New Testament of what the Christian life looks like, it looks like two things. It looks like a lot of hardship and a lot of joy. So God is not the fun police. How then do we change our minds? How then do we experience um, metanoia? What, what is the key? How do we do it? How do we practically do it? Let's get practical for a moment. How would you do it? One word. Worship. Worship. Paul picks this up. Actually, before I go there, Paul is already linked in the text we looked at earlier, the presentation of our bodies to God as an act of worship. What you do with your body is worship. Worship is not just singing on a Sunday morning, although it includes that. Worship is what you do on the Monday morning afterwards. At work. 
uh, it's what you do when you turn the TV on. There's some series I've stopped watching because there's stuff there. It's just bad for me. It's, it's not good. It's, it's, you know, if, have you ever watched uh, athletes competing in the Olympics? They're amazing. They look amazing. And, and I guarantee that they don't eat the way you do. There's no way. Because what you effect, eat affects what you look like. What you eat with your eyes affects what your heart looks like. Because, and, and I'm going to look at this in some detail, what you behold, you become. You want to build neural pathways that are, that are heading towards glory? Watch out what you put on the TV. And if you can't, get rid of your TV. Paul writes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. That's, that's not something we, we think of often, I think, but, but there you go. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What you behold, you become. What you gaze upon becomes your reality. Have you ever noticed that, that old married couples, I'm so glad I haven't got my glasses on so I can't look at anybody. Old married couples start looking like each other. Have you noticed that? There's a, there's a scientific reason for that. There's several explanations. The one I like is this. When you spend a lot of time with someone, you say the things they say, which means that your facial muscles pull in the same direction all the time because it's a repetition. You pull the same faces because it's mirroring, right? So you should always marry someone better looking at yourself. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Who you spend time with influences what you become, what you look like. The Bible says here, Paul writes, we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord become transformed into his likeness, into his image. You will know, in incidentally, the same story applies to dogs and their owners. <laughs> Lucky Charlie. Um, I derailed my th myself. Let me get back to it. You, you will... As soon as I say this, you're going to think of somebody. Are you ready? Are you ready? You're going to have someone in mind. There are people who love Jesus so much that when you look at them, they shine. They're shiny people. Yeah? You're thinking of them, right? That's what it looks like. Spend time in the presence of God and you will be transformed to radiate what he's like. I had coffee with, with a guy he was running a church overseas in the UK um, for a couple of years. And eventually I said to him, I said, look, I can't get over your face. You're like so shiny. Because Jesus was leaking out of the guy. That's a man who spent time in his presence. 
Okay, so what do I do about sin? Because we all have, have sin, yeah? Just me, no? Everyone. What do we do about it? How do you get rid of sin? Do you try harder? How's that working for you? Anyone? The problem with sin is that it sticks to you. It sticks to your insides and it coats all that you have. And after a while, we start hiding it because it's, it's easier to hide than to face. But then it clings to more stuff. If you want to get rid of sin, how do you do it? Well, if this black used motor oil is a representation of sin, one thing I could do is I could stick my hands in there and try to pull it out. What do you think it would look like? I volunteer Nick to come and give us a demonstration. <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't be good for me. It wouldn't be good for the carpet. We're a mess, right? So there's another way of doing it. And I'm hoping you guys can see it. If you can't, I'll explain it as we go along. And the cool thing about this illustration, because every illustration limps, the cool thing about this particular illustration is that the results aren't immediate. What I'm doing here, for those who are sitting at the back, is I'm pouring water into motor oil. And you see that everything still looks black, right? So you should be saying to me, Raymond, your illustration is, is rubbish. Your illustration doesn't work. Shouldn't the water displace the oil and all you see is glorious, clear water? Isn't that a better picture of what it looks like? That was deliberate because sometimes to see the illustration you have to remove physical impediments. <laughs> Thanks for playing along, man. That's what I intended all the time. <laughs> Lying's a sin. <laughs> so I'm gonna leave that for a moment and, and, and if 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 it happens as it as it did in practice, you're gonna see something pretty cool. Yeah, it's happening. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> You're going to see that, that whilst the, the results aren't immediate, that's going to go clear. He said in faith, because that's what happened in the practice run. But to deal with sin, what we need to do is to be so full of God that he displaces it from us. The more we worship God, the more we behold him, the more we're transformed by him, the more we're filled with him, the more we, we make room for the love of God to take up residence in us, the less space sin has to stick to anything. God and sin can't inhabit the same space. The more we're full of God, the less we're full of sin. Oh, this illustration is taking too long, but it's getting there. I can see through there, even if it doesn't look like it from your perspective. In Luke chapter 7, we read this. Jesus speaking of the, John the Baptist. 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized, baptized rather, with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, not like me, the experts in the Mosaic law, right? The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized for him, by him. See, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. And, and those who didn't want to be baptized for the repentance of sin rejected God's purposes for themselves. We can do that. God has purposes for us that are glorious. For, for you to make a significant impact in the world, for the kingdom, to transform lives by your presence. And you can reject those purposes by deciding not to repent of the stuff that holds you bound. You can do that. And God in his infinite grace and mercy will allow you to do that very thing. I, I didn't want to deal with the wrath of God. That's a separate sermon. But, but the worst expression of the wrath of God is to give us what we want. If you don't believe me, read the book of Romans. It's there in detail. Anyway. Repentance is an invitation to the holiness of God. What do I mean by that? Because you remember that the sermon title was The Holiness of Repentance. I'm wondering whether I didn't put enough God in there. Maybe there's a lesson in that too. What has repentance got to do with holiness? Because we have the righteousness of God. It's this. Holiness means three things. Wholeness. Holy otherness, to be different to everyone else. And holy alive, to be completely alive, to have the Zoe of God, the, 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 the life of God of the age to come now. An invitation to repentance is an invitation to otherness, not to be like everyone else, to wholeness, complete healing of every part of your life, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, everything. And wholly alive, to be completely alive. Those three things. It's a grace gift. John Foreman from the band Switchfoot, who has the gift of compacting massive theological truths into a single line of song, said this, wrote this in one of his songs. A little resurrection every time I fall. It's my favorite line, I think, from any Christian song ever. A little resurrection every time I fall. Why? Because when we sin and return to God, he resurrects us. It's a little resurrection. What do I mean he resurrects us? He restores us to his life, wholeness, holy otherness, holy aliveness. That's what repentance is. In 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to wrap up with this, 
Paul writes, We are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since, here's the the punchline, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Did you see that? Let us cleanse ourselves. But aren't we full of the righteousness of God? Yes. But sin gets in, and we're responsible to get that stuff out. We're responsible to tell it to Futzak. We're responsible to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. David, a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer and a murderer. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Bathsheba's uh, husband, Uriah the Hittite. And, and God says of that guy, man after my own heart, how? How can that be? Because David understood something about repentance. David understood something about the character of God. He, he said this in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the psalm I go to when I sin. Because I get such encouragement from the fact that, that a man after God's own heart both sinned and was redeemed in it. From, from, from David and Bathsheba, a union born in, in adultery and murder, came Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and, in, and ultimately the line of Jesus. Jesus was born into that line. If you believe that your sin is too great for God's mercy... Your view of God's mercy is too small. If you believe that your sin is somehow exempt from the grace of God, I want to tell you something. You have a wrong view of God's grace. The Bible says that, that when Jesus was crucified, God laid on him every sin, past, present, and future. If you think God skipped yours, then you are more special than you think you are. See, sometimes we say, I, I've done it again. Like, how many times is God going to put up? You know what? I'm just going to live with this one. No. You're not going to live with this one. If you think that your sin is beyond the reach of the mercy of God, the God you serve is far too small. This morning... We have the opportunity to, to change, to experience a little resurrection. For some of us, it may be the first time you've ever surrendered to God. For some of us, it's an opportunity to face down the, the sin, like used motor oil that has clung to the insides of our heart, the, the little corner that we don't like God to shine the light of his holiness and goodness upon. And we're going to say this. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Not his fist. Not his angry countenance, although God is angry with sin. And his wrath is real. 
That's not what generally turns us to repentance. It's his kindness. It's because he loves us. Because he wants us to look like him. Because he wants us to reflect what he's like to a world who desperately needs to experience that. So this morning I want to offer you a little resurrection. Who's up for that? I'm up for that. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day he says, I don't care about your, your, your sin that is black as this used motor oil that should be going nice and clear. It isn't. Because Jesus paid the price. And I'm not going to say it's as easy as slipping your hand up. It's not. It's your whole life. Jesus bids you come to die that you may live. It will cost you everything. Everything. So worth it. That's one group. Another group is those, like me, being believers for a while, and you allowed sinning. And we all do. One way or another. But that shouldn't be our default setting because it isn't. Our legal position is that we have the righteousness of Christ. And God wants to fill you and displace the sin in your heart as you repent of it. And, and part of that is to confess that it's sin because, you know, you, you can't confess a sin you don't recognize as sin. Deal with it. Call it out. Repent of it. Be transformed. Be resurrected. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask everybody to close their eyes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And we're going to see what God does. Every revival began with repentance. Everyone. If you want to be alive again, repent. Father, we give our hearts to you. We want to thank you for your kindness. That you offered us new clothes. That we've walked around in these tatty clothes for too long. We want to thank you, God, that you've you've said, drop the bags. We want to thank you that you've said, stop digging a hole that just gets filled again and again. We pray this morning, Lord, for your healing. We pray that you would change our hearts and minds by your spirit, that you would so flood us with your goodness, with your kindness, with your mercy, that we would be transformed. Lord, let us see your glory. Let us look upon your image. Let us see you face to face and radiate what you're like. We declare that our sin is sin. We turn our back on it, Lord. We run away from it. We turn our hearts to you and we run towards you. We pray, God, fill us. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Fill us afresh with your kindness and your love and your mercy. Transform us. Shape us. Change us. We declare together, Lord, to this morning that repentance isn't tears. It's change. 
we want to experience that change, Lord, not just today, but tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, until we see you face to face in glory. We thank you that we're sons and daughters of the Most High, and today we say, God, help us look like that.